had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. I'm in love with Could you. make me be true. Snap out of it. Could make me be true. The magnificence that comes out of your eyes and your voice and the way you stand there and the way you walk. You're lit from within, Tracy. It had to be you, wonderful you. It had to be you. Hello, romantics. Welcome to It Had to Be You, the Talk Film Society podcast all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your guest host, Megan, and I'm taking over for Manish, who will be the guest for the grand finale of the Queer Romance miniseries. So the film that we're going to be talking about is Brokeback Mountain, which is, of course, a classic. And Manish, let's kick this off with, what was it like the first time you saw this film? What have your experiences been watching it more recently? How have your feelings about the film changed over the years? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Brokeback Mountain is like, it was one of my all time favorite movies. I've seen it like many, many times over the years. It was a movie that I think I first kind of realized, you know, like who Ang Lee was as a director. I mean, mm-hmm. I had seen, um, I had seen Hulk in theaters before this, which came out before this. Um, Pretty sure I had I like kind of half watched Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon when that movie came out. Uh, I think pretty sure we rented it on you know DVD, uh, and I was kind of like whatever. Like I didn't, you know, I was like nine or ten at the time, so I didn't quite <laughs> click. Uh, actually, might have been eleven. Um, and uh, but and and this I, this movie I saw in theaters as well, and I remember specifically. Uh, going with my friends, uh, Melissa, who was 17 at the time, mm-hmm. um, and my friend Brittany, who was uh, 16, like me. And so we were underage. But we, so, I, I think, you know, Melissa, God bless her, she wanted to go. So she took us. We had to drive to Virginia from Southern Maryland. It was about an hour. Oh, wow. To, yeah, to the AMC Hoffman. Because I'm pretty sure this was definitely, I mean, I think this movie came out in December. 2005 Mm -hmm. um so this must have been january 2006 uh because i remember being after a christmas break um and uh, i also remember very specifically lying to my parents about (laughs) seeing it because i didn't think i didn't know if they they would approve or not i mean Mm -hmm. you know i was still kind of semi i was definitely closeted to them semi-closeted to myself so i don't think i even was like didn't didn't want to take the risk of even mentioning this movie to them but also like at the time there was a lot of you know um a lot of like scandal around this movie like i there was a lot of things on the morning news and late night talk shows you know making fun of this movie or saying this movie is too gay or too risque so i knew my parents would have just i don't know if the gay part would have turned them off but definitely they might have thought that it was like this super raunchy vulgar graphic movie which it actually isn't um no and uh so i remember watching it and actually the main draw for me at the time was i mean the the gayness of course but also like anne hathaway because she had just done princess diaries and so to me this felt like her first adult role after doing a lot of kids movies and Mm -hmm. that that was very exciting and um, I also remember in 2004, the first time I heard about this movie was in Entertainment Weekly. 
uh, hearing about, I think it was like a either a preview or an interview with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal or just some article about it saying like, you know, this is a movie where two guys go up out in the woods and have sex together. And I was like scandalized and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Reflecting back, I know that I was like very, that, you know, that was a very enticing prospect to me. But at the time, it was a little scary. But this is one of those movies that, you know, was just like so hyped at the time. You know, it was all over, like I said, like talk shows and late night and the morning news and radio and stuff. It was like all over. And I've ever seen the movie being like, I just didn't really quite understand it. Like I knew mm-hmm. that I liked it. I knew that it was really powerful, but. I was so concerned about like, uh, I don't think I really got what it was going for because I was just so wrapped up in like, wow, like that was actually like gay sex on screen, <laughs> you know, like gay, like men yeah. together. And I feel like this was the first time I remember seeing like a gay movie on the big screen. And it, it, it was definitely, a, it was definitely a moment. And I you know bought the movie, watched it a lot in high school, Always kind of like late at night, you know, during the summer or whatever, after my parents went to bed. I don't think they've ever seen the movie. They might have seen it since. I mean, I don't know. But I never showed it to them. So, and like over the years, I've really come to appreciate the movie just like on a thematic level. And like my takeaways from it now are even like barely even about the queerness of it, actually. Like when I was watching it today, just to, you know, had I, I had it on and it was so funny because like I was like doing some work while it was on. So I'm like, I don't need to pay attention that closely because I've seen this movie so many times, but it's kind of like you look up and like a new stage of life has happened in this, in for the characters mm-hmm. and, or you kind of like, you notice how fast things happen and how like all these moments in the film are, are very connected, but um, it's, it's of course a very sad movie, but it to me doesn't quite the sadness of the movie doesn't quite hit like what people think of when they say like you know a gay tragedy movie. And I know that's such a cliche that you know that uh, you know we queer people are always kind of you know bristling against or or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, the sadness of this movie is not even about the fact that these two people who are in love can't be together, but. It's just this like wistfulness about time and family and loss and regret um, that even if I think it was a straight romance, I think this movie would still be just as sad um, Mm -hmm. and still just as profound. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this, this movie was of course, you know, like very, you know, infamous in its Oscar trajectory and it's, a big moneymaker, I think it really granted Ang Lee kind of license to do, you know, a lot uh, with his career and take it in different directions. I mean, he's always been an experimental filmmaker, you know, kind of going from genre to genre. Uh, and my respect and admiration for him has only grown over the years. Um, I mean, especially in the last couple of years when I've kind of really taken the time to like dig into his movies and what he's saying with them and how they all kind of relate to each other. So, I mean, this movie is like a turning point in my life in so many ways, like the queerness, the ennui of it all, the like appreciation for film, the appreciation for film as a, filmmaking as a technique and art form, you know, and seeing all these amazing actors, you know, either in a new light, like Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal, or even just being introduced to them, like with Michelle Williams and, Keith Ledger. I mean, of course, I, it's, I might have seen, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You and 
a knight's tale but this was the first time i was like wow this is like a guy to look out for <laughs> um only solidified by his later work you know and i'm not there and of course the dark knight but um yeah it's just i when it, when, like when i kind of look back at my own experience with film i feel like this movie is a a, a cornerstone of it um but you know i would also love to hear hear you talk about it because i, I know this was your first time watching it it was. it was. It's kind of interesting to me that like I've had this whole intense history for it with it for over almost 20 years. And you're, it's such a new thing for you. And I'd love to see what your thoughts are, are as well um, coming from it, you know, now in 2023 after mm -hmm. all, that, all that, all this time. Yeah, it's it's very weird to watch it for the first time now. And especially I feel like a very bad queer person because I'm just <laughs> like, I, you know, there's been so much buildup for it. And of course, I know the Oscar controversy that it didn't win and that Crash won and that it was called the Gay Cowboy movie. And like, I thought I knew everything there was to know about it even before I watched it, just because I had read so much about it and heard so much about the discourse of around it. And... I have to say it was such a delight to watch this film. It's, I mean, it's beautiful and it's stunning. And I knew it would be just because you're right. Ang Lee is such an incredible filmmaker and I love the way he shoots film and everything is very meticulous and restrained mm -hmm. and crouching tiger hidden dragon is one of my absolute favorite films. Yeah. So, and I love Hulk. I think it's such an unusual superhero film. Um, and I really like his approach to it, even though I know it it's not a film that many people enjoy. Yeah, yeah. You know, it didn't really land uh, with audiences, but I really liked it. And so I it was it, so it's strange that I hadn't seen it for so long because I wanted to. It's not like I didn't. It was just one of those things. I'm like, oh, I'll watch it someday. I'll watch it, you know, next month and turned into years. And I'm a huge fan of all of all four of these actors. They're all incredible. And yeah, Heath Ledger, the first time I saw him was in 10 Things I Hate About You. And I was like, who is this guy? He is amazing. Like the level of craftsmanship and gravitas in that performance, which could have been such a throwaway performance, is just incredible. So seeing him here, which is arguably one of his best roles, if, I mean, because I would say probably this and The Dark Knight are his best roles because he's yeah. just so incredible in both of them. But I was not prepared for how restrained this film was and how mm -hmm. much it was about. I mean, it's not a surprise that it's about repression because, of course, you know, it's a very hyper masculine world about cowboys in the 60s and 70s. So that's not really a surprise. But at the same time, just there, just the restraint and the yearning and the loneliness and you know, you mentioned the wistfulness of time and like lost time. And yeah, I think that's what's so gutting about yeah. this story. I mean, like, of course, the homophobia is repugnant and horrible. And that this, the specter of homophobia and being beaten to death brutally for possibly being gay that, that NS witnesses as a small child, like is just so traumatic and awful, but it's also the lost time. Like, like, you know, Jack keeps saying throughout, like, we could have this great life together. We could live together. And Ennis just can't let go and he can't yeah. let himself be happy and he can't do it. And that's just so tragic and beautiful. And the fact that they do connect on this very physical, 
sexual, affectionate, emotional level, all these levels is just so beautiful. So this was just such a treat. And I'm more mad at myself that I denied myself this experience for so many years because yeah. it was just such a beautiful, beautiful film from the opening frame to the closing shot. And I loved it. I loved the performances. I loved the score because I'm such a huge fan of Gustavo Santa Olaya. Yeah. Love his work. And the score is stunning. Cinematography, like all of it is just beautiful. So this was just an incredible experience to finally, finally see it and be like, oh yeah, this is what everyone's talking about. This, this is, is an incredible yeah. film. <laughs> this is it. Um, and uh, you know what, what I find so mesmerizing about this movie um is that the opening section in broke up mountain is like i mean it feels like it takes it feels very quick actually mm-hmm. um and i think i realized today when i was watching it uh because I, I was watching it on on uh i like dvr'd it from like stars you know um and uh it, I realized that, you know, like having been watching it with like timestamps and, and stuff and seeing how like they really I think it's only about maybe like a half hour, maybe 40 minutes that they are like 35 minutes on Brooklyn Mountain. Like it's very quick, mm-hmm. but it goes by so gradually because it really documents a lot of time within that period, within that short amount of time. But then after that, it's like you know, years just like flash by within a blink of an eye, literally. Right. And, you know, when it's like they go from getting, you know, Alma and Ennis get married, then they have babies, then those babies are toddler. And it's like that. And, you know, uh, Jack also <laughs> has his own family and is mm-hmm. in and out of, you know, having these, uh, what we now call DL hookups. <laughs> um, and uh, it's just so, but it, to me, it feels like that extended section in Brokeback Mountain, which is, you know, very short in terms of like the duration of the film, but also feels very gradual and slow and deliberate. Um, you start to like, and this movie this does a really beautiful job of like, really in like uh, providing the audience with nostalgia for Brokeback Mountain because yes. everything is so fast and I think this even it feels true when like when they do are able to like go back and and have those it's like time does stand still there and then when they're off the mountain it's you know everything is just flashing by and they're wasting years not talking to each other or you know only having very short amount of time together mm-hmm. and it's just like it, it it reminds me a lot of Call Me By Your Name which is another movie about a very um specific place that mm-hmm means so much to the characters and when they're out of it they can't quite function <laughs> and they can't quite, i mean we don't really see that much of you know the world outside of that italian village but mm-hmm. you get the sense that when they're gone it's they can't quite capture that i mean that's why like that that we also has a sad ending of separation because they don't live in that time and they don't live in that place anymore so they can't re there's no way to recreate it and i i think that's true here in Brooklyn Mountain and I think what makes this movie really sad but really profound is that I you know Jack feels to me feels like he's trying to convince himself that they could actually be together outside of Brooklyn Mountain to me it feels like I don't think they could because there's just too much of the real world you Mm -hmm. know and 
a lot of it is that homophobia, that like implicit threat of violence and the fact that they've built these lives around their marriages and their families and their jobs. And um, it just feels like there's just so much working against them that the only time they can really have, they can they only have that happiness together is on the mountain. And it's just like, I just, I can't, I I just can't like really comprehend sort of this like intense repression. I mean, you know, we've all repressed stuff in our lives. It's not that, but just that like I mean, Ennis for like as a, as a character, like it's just so um, I'm just like so much energy is being spent on not allowing yourself any kind of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, even with his own family, I mean, I think it's so profound that like the last few scenes of the film. He's meeting with his daughter, who's now played by Kate Mara, and it's such a... He has to, like, his initial reaction is, I can't come to your wedding because I have to work. And it's just, that to me, that to me is really sad, that mm-hmm. someone has to... Um, that, that that That's his reaction, and that's his family, and that's how... And that's what's expected, but, but then it shows this, like, growth of, like, you know, I will make it work. And it's just... I mean, what what did you think of... Uh, you know, Ennis's character and how he is so repressed and, and lonely and how he kind of like brings that to himself sometimes. Uh, I know he's such a, he's such a heartbreaking character because of that, because it, I don't want to say he brings it on himself, but it sometimes it feels like he does. Cause it's like, no, just, just embrace Jack, just allow yourself to be happy. Yeah. And it's so frustrating, but at the same time, it, it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's completely understandable in a way why he is that way and why he's so repressed and why he's so turned inward because it's it's interesting that when they're on Brokeback Mountain and Jack says he's like, hey, when he when Ennis is talking about his childhood to Jack and he's like, hey, friend, that's the mm-hmm. most you've said in the two weeks we've been here. Yeah. And so it's very clear he's a very quiet person. He doesn't really talk to anyone. He doesn't really open up. But with Jack, he does. And he really comes into his own and he really is able to express himself and share his thoughts and feelings. And so it is so tragic that he can't even do that with his daughters, who he clearly loves and clearly adores. But it also feels like it's very much a statement about not just being queer and not just about homophobia, but also about toxic masculinity in general. Like, Like the fact that they're cowboys, this is seen as like the idealized American, you know, man, rugged and masculine. And yet... And he's embodying all of that, like being like very quiet, very stoic, you know, not showing emotion. And yet, but he does show emotion in these interesting moments where he resorts to violence, like where he like beats up the guys who are, you know, talking crudely at the fireworks show. Mm -hmm. And he punches the wall when Jack leaves. And yeah, so it's it's just it's very interesting. Like he only allows himself to show emotions in certain ways, but then other times he does cry. He like cries and breaks down and Jack holds him. So to me, it's it's so he's such a tragic character because he won't allow himself to be happy, but also it's tragic because he won't allow himself to be even a pursue a relationship with Jack in a more, I guess, 
committed way. But then it's also sad because it's so many men, like it, it kind of is saying like so many men are like this, or this is what the ideal is supposed to be. And look at how it's breaking him and how it's destroying yeah. him. So I just think it's a, he's a fascinating, complex character, but so sad, just so sad. Yeah. I mean, I like what you say about toxic masculinity because um, I, I think what I find so interesting about this movie is that um, it does feel like a Western. Mm-hmm. Um, even, I mean, of course, it's not like a shoot 'em up Western, of course, but because it does play into this like Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, you know, method of living as, as men in terms of like, Keeping things keeping things quiet, keeping things internal, and yes. not even showing affection to your wife. You mm-hmm. know? It's, it's very like fellas is a gay to love your wife, you know. <laughs> um, and that I just like I find that to be so interesting because um, you know, like I even for me, I find that it sometimes it can be hard to express your feelings and show emotion and I'm not a cowboy or anything like that. Like I'm, I'm a coastal elite, you know? <laughs> um, but, and so, but to be like being this thing where um, you're confronted with something that is like the ultimate, um, you know, threat to your masculinity, which is like being involved in a homosexual affair and having to, I think part of the struggle of this movie is having to, reconcile kind of like your upbringing and your um your upbringing and the way that you're supposed to perform masculinity with mm-hmm. being very tender and romantic and um secretive too about a relationship that you're having and that it's with another man and it's um but it's it's like this yeah like he's always kind of battling himself in terms mm-hmm. of what he's supposed to want what he actually wants and and all that um and i th- i think it's a good contrast with with um jack you know jake Gyllenhaal is such a um you know jake Gyllenhaal is probably like my first ish celebrity crush i guess you know uh, partially because of this movie i guess <laughs> but uh i mean i'm pretty sure it was this movie more so than anything else but mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, he's such a like pretty boy, you know, mm-hmm. and he's so soft and he's so tender. And, um, he also seems to have his own struggles with masculinity and his own struggles with, um, you know, with the way that he is, re- is reconciling with his own masculinity, but also his own homosexual desire tendencies, what have you. Um, and he feels that like he has to constantly prove that he is masculine. Like what one of my favorite scenes in the movie is um the Thanksgiving scene with his yes. father. Um because it's the one time where he kind of shows some kind of authority over this man who, you know, he owes his career to. I mean, I guess he owes it more to his wife because like I'm sure, you know, like she married him and then he kind of got got all this wealth and success and career prosperity and you know and all that but and i feel like it's like you know the one time his father-in-law really sees him as a man yes but it's like um it's again it's like this expression of like anger and mm-hmm. um uh, but then he also has these like moments of like where he has to i mean 
he's I mean like I hate to say it but like he's the bottom and so he's in this position of being more um emasculated I guess Mm -hmm. and uh and I feel like that's a lot of his internal struggle is sort of trying to figure out what that means and how to perform masculinity even if he's in the more like quote-unquote like feminine or effeminate position mm-hmm. in this relationship and he's also i mean forgetting about the sexual position but also just like he's the one that seems to be pushing the relationship more and being like i want more i need more i can do this um and that's you know again like you know in a western it's always the woman who's like you know don't go out into the war i need mm-hmm. you at home. totally uh, so it's very it's just like it's like this movie i feel like has a lot of commentary on like masculinity and also like the traditional gender roles like within the western genre within film and like and within like relationships on and off the screen mm-hmm. absolutely yeah I completely agree. I think that's what's so fascinating. I mean, there's so much that's so fascinating about it, but I think what it has to say about gender mm-hmm. and society and those expectations is really, really fascinating. It also, I think it's interesting um, that you were reminded of another film. I was too. Um, I was definitely reminded of um, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog mm, and yeah. that depiction of, again, the idealized masculinity through the cowboy and kind of the subversion of that um, through a queer cowboy. And yeah, so I just, I think there's so many fascinating layers here, but it is it is interesting to see uh, Jack be the initiator and he's constantly the one who's like the optimist of the two of them and the optimist in their relationship. And I, one of the, th- I love that Thanksgiving dinner scene too. It's great. I also love that as soon as Jack hears about, um, Ennis's divorce, he immediately <laughs> drives from Texas to Wyoming and he's like, okay, I'm here. I'm ready. And yeah. this is like, what? He's like, I've got my daughters for the weekend. What? He's like, yeah. I'm ready. And it's so sad because he thinks like, oh, that's who's standing in the way is, you know, Ennis's wife, Alma. But no, it's not. It's Ennis. Anyway, it's just very I, interesting. I, I just feel like I feel like Jack has the most to lose because, you know, he's the one that's getting accustomed to wealth and access and, um, you know, and protection and, and privilege and all that. And yeah, he's the one that's the most, um, he's very reckless and he's mm-hmm. very, um, uh, he takes a lot of risks like hitting on his like, another couple in their lot in their social circle hitting on mm-hmm. the man, uh david harbour's character or going to mexico and um uh, uh and sleeping with um sex workers in the in the woods I and mean, i'm thinking like you know i would be terrified to go into the dark with a stranger in a foreign country like I mean, even like, even here in America, it, it yeah. be ter- you have that moment. And I feel like there's like, I think Jake Gyllenhaal plays that that complexity really well, actually, in a really subtle way of like, he's kind of like, this could be the day, like, this could be how I like get beat up if I just, you know, look at the wrong person or, you know, or the, the fact that like, he plays that feeling of like nerves, but excitement and also like being kind of like turned on by the danger a little bit. 
um, and being so like, I mean, like when he's hitting on like David Harbour, it's so like, it's just subtle enough that like mm-hmm. you could play it off like innocently, but it's also not subtle at all. And, or he hits on like a, another like radio guy in, in a bar. Yes. And, and it also made me wonder like, I mean, I've never, I've never dated outside of a dating app. Like it's really, really rare for me to meet people like in real life. And I just can't imagine even like 50 years ago when in the, in the, in the West of having to know, like having to figure out like who is safe to hit on. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think, you know, as Ennis's own fears represent that like the wrong, the, the wrong look could get you killed. Um, or I mean, killed or beat up or or, or assaulted in, in in any way, and it's just like, and 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 Jack is just so. Um, but for him, this like, um, this like desire is just so unquenchable, and mm-hmm. in a way, and it, and I think a lot of it is like, his yearning for Ennis is just now being like, consummated through these other encounters because it's like he can't. He can't live without Ennis, but if he has to, then he's going to just really try to find some kind of outlet for this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for for his desires and, and his um, impulses. Absolutely. It is really interesting how he kind of, not even kind of, he doesn't think about the consequences really because yeah. like even right from the start when um, Aguirre, the, the foreman who hires them to take care of the sheep on Brokeback Mountain when he goes back later and he's like, oh, hey, do you have another job for me this summer? And the guy's like, no. And it, he, you know, he and Randy Quaid's character is like telling him about like how he found them together. And and he's like, I don't have a job for you. Yeah. So it's like you'd think that maybe he might be more cautious or might be worried after that. But no, he's not. He just plows ahead. And he's like, nope, I'm just going to keep doing me, which I mean, is really admirable. But also it is interesting how, you know, is that just because that's the person he is or is it his desire for Ennis that's, you know, clouding his judgment? Is it both? Who knows? But it's very clear that he is just so consumed by Ennis and and vice versa. Like, it's very clear, like, Ennis is too, but he just goes about it in a very different way. Yeah, it's like Ennis is self-punishing versus... Jack's impulsiveness yes. and recklessness, and um, it's like this. Both have they both have this really unhealthy outlet um, that is only hurting themselves. I mean, like I, I don't know any history about like medicine or like healthcare, but I was, like, was there any kind of fear at all about you know like STIs or I mean I guess it's pre-AIDS, but. Not by much, you know. No, yeah. Um, I mean, definitely in the 70s, there were STIs, so... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, but, like, I'm just wondering if, like, Jack ever... Like, this is so... Like, I hate that my mind went there this today when I was watching it, but I was like, did he ever go to a clinic to see if he was, like, potentially harming his wife and his own own health? But maybe not, And, and I think that it's just, like... I don't know what he probably didn't even know that that was something that he'd have to be worried about it. I don't know, but it's just like this recklessness is so fascinating to me because it just seems like if anything, maybe it's like a self-destructiveness too. Just like, Mm. you know, I can't have what I want. So I'm just going to just 
go down a path where I'm I could potentially lose my life, my wealth, mm-hmm. my way of life, you know, my my lifestyle. Um, and that kind of brings me to sort of like another thing I wanted to touch upon uh, is that this movie, I think Broken Mount is very underrated as a marriage movie because it does have two very different but ultimately doomed marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I remember reading some like review or some tweet or whatever about like this movie perpetuates the stereotype of like gay men as, you know, adulterous and secretive and down low and um the long you know like the misogynistic kind of plot point of like long-suffering wives but i actually feel like this movie is a lot smarter um and i'd love to kind of hear your take on that because i feel like i mean of course alma knows very early on kind of what's happening and i think uh i think in hathaway's character is also a little bit more aware than she might let on or a little bit more i mean she has like a more steady head on her shoulders than I, I think that um, one might imagine. But I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that as well. Yeah, I do. I think that I get why someone would feel that way or assert that. Um, I didn't get that read either because, and I thought it was interesting reading about the the making of that one of the screenwriters, Diana Osana, um, wanted to flesh out Annie Prue's story by focusing on the wives, mm-hmm. by putting their perspectives and what they felt and what they thought, which I think is a really great choice. And it is really heartbreaking to see Alma because, I mean, she later, you know, threatens to out him, out Ennis, which is horrible and awful. And he, of yeah. course, reacts violently and horribly. Um, but yeah, but it's, it is really sad that she thought she had this one kind of marriage and then she realizes like oh no i don't and but we do get her perspective and we do get her feelings and she does end up marrying you know monroe the guy she worked with at the grocery store and that seems to be a happy marriage yeah and then yeah i think you're right i think loreen really i think she is very much more i think she is very tuned into what's happening and i wasn't sure throughout the film but I think at the end, when she's talking on the phone to Ennis, to me, it was very clear that she had a sense of what their relationship was or what it might have been. And so we get her perspective, too. And I think, you know, sure, we could have gotten more of their perspectives. But I didn't feel that it was a misogynist way of framing them. And because I feel like we get their perspectives and... Again, to me, it felt like it's not so much a condemnation of Ennis or of Jack or of their secrecy or their adultery or infidelity. To me, it was more, this is a condemnation of our, you know, homophobic, you know, sexist society, not of these characters, but of society and what they must resort to in order to navigate their lives and and live as best as possible. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think what's, I feel like Lorene and Hathaway's character, I feel like she's always kind of understood that her marriage is very transactional. Yes, yes. Um, and, and I think that's especially true because she knows that, you know, Jack, I, I, as you mentioned, like Jack was just sort of a poor, struggling rodeo shepherd guy, like he had nothing. And that because they met and got married, he has a lot now. And I think that, you know, he 
provides her with, you know, a son and a home and, and a marriage. And, you know, I'd probably get her parents off her back for a second. <laughs> probably. Um, for, at least for a little bit. But, and, you know, she provides him with all this material goods and access to work and all that. Um, there was a line that she says uh, in that sort of last phone call scene where, you know, she says, like, Jack always kept his friends' addresses in his head. Mm-hmm. And that line really stood out to me today. Um, and, I, and I was trying to figure out why, because it's such a, like, you know, it's such a throwaway line. It could mean anything. But to me, that felt like she at least knew that he was a man of secrets. Yes. And that there was a part of his life she what he wasn't sharing with her. And maybe she never knew, like, what exactly that was. Although I feel like she probably guessed based on, you know, how much how many times he went fishing or whatever but um i feel like in some cases she was aware of his double life his secrecy but either didn't care because maybe she had no love for him left anymore and now Mm -hmm. just kind of knew knew what kind of life she was leading and was probably okay with it and um, and I, I think it's an interesting contrast to Alma because I feel like, Alma, like as you're saying, like Alma is devastated to find out that her husband is betraying her in this way and ultimately leaves him and is sort of stuck to stuck with him because of the kids, but mm-hmm. also because that they have this secret together now. And and uh, I, I mean that Thanksgiving scene. I think both the Thanksgiving scenes are really effective in how these men are dealing with this with the confrontation of their own masculinity and failures and and all that um Mm -hmm. you know ang lee is a really good director of like dinner tables yes um a lot of his movies even the ones that you know like life of pi and gemini man and Billy Lynn and, you know, uh, Sense Sensibility, you know, Ice Storm, of course, like a lot of his movies feature scenes around dinner tables. And um, and he's, I, I think uh, one thing that ties all of his movies together is a sense of family and what, what it means to have a family structure. And you know, one thing I learned about Ang Lee, which I love, is that, you know, what, while he was struggling to become a filmmaker in America after he had, like... I think for a few years while he had done his like first feature and, you know, he was making the bet, the wedding banquet, Etrick man, woman, which were also successful, but not, you know, like they weren't making a hundred million dollars, like, you know, Brooklyn mountain did, but um, his wife was supporting him as she's a, uh, God, I'm going to sound like such a stalker, but she's, <laughs> she's like a physicist or, a, 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 or some kind of scientist. Like she's a PhD. She's very smart. Oh, very cool. Um, and, uh, you know, they're one of those Hollywood couples that are married forever. Like, I mean, she's not in Hollywood, but... Um, and uh, I remember reading somewhere or hearing on some interview or some podcast where, you know, because he was the stay-at-home parent at the time while his wife was working and he was kind of, like, writing his scripts and kind of struggling to get them made. And uh, he kind of... That's where he got his his eye and appreciation for sort of like do- domesticity and, you know, the value of the dinner table and what it means when families come together to eat uh, amidst all their own troubles and uh, and issues and concerns and, you know, um, arguments and whatever. And and I, that to me, that, that cares through all of his movies and it's such a sharply observed um, 
scenario in all these movies because I, I think he probably saw that in a way that I think a lot of men probably don't see because when they come home to dinner, they don't really know what's going on with the family or, mm-hmm. you know, they're so focused on their own. Thing. And we see that in this movie. Um, and uh, so yeah, I think it's so, um, I, I feel like Ang Lee's hand with this, these two marriages are so, it's so delicate because um, we we can see the sort of the repercussions of this affair, even mm-hmm. if we, and it's like, it's not, I mean, I don't know, it feels so stupid to be like, but if we're rooting for them to get together, because I, you know, this movie's more complicated than that, you know? <laughs> um, but even as we can understand why Jack and Ennis, you know, are in the situation they're in, we still appreciate the, the pain and the devastation and the, um, the the feeling of being feeling resigned to something that both Alma and and Lorene feel, um, and I think it's you know it's it's so observant and so sharp to see that um, that the how all these things you know play out and and um, sort of like how it all affects every person in the family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Even if they don't have any lines or they have one line, it's still like you f- you feel that like because I even think like you look at Lorene's mother who probably hardly speaks, but I feel like I know her entire character just from how she reacts to what she's seeing at, at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of mother she was, what kind of grandmother she is, what kind of wife she is. Um, and again, being confronted with this fact that like, yeah, this is the kind of life that she probably wanted for her daughter, even if it's not perfect. And she has to deal with she has to deal with that, um, with what that means in, mm-hmm. in real life. Absolutely, yeah. No, I think that I I completely agree with everything that you said, and I think that Ang Lee is such an observant director and is very, very detailed, and clearly knows human behavior, and. I, I can't help but think back to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and yeah. how fascinating that film is in not only its small moments as well as, of course, its stunning action scenes, but also in how it depicts bonds between people, how it depicts gender and these little, little touches that show his perspective and i think it is really fascinating that he that his wife supported him and that that i'm sure that gave him a very different perspective than it does so many other men in hetero relationships and marriages and and yeah i think that's very clear his his perspective on throughout his films but especially here too which is really interesting i think of all the movies that he made to me the one that feels the most like brooklyn mountain is actually crouching tiger hidden dragon um, mm. because I, to me, that movie's also about repression. Absolutely. It's also about a couple that, you know, is in love and has a lot of chemistry and a lot of affection for each other, but just cannot be together because of some rule. Mm-hmm. You know, the rule that's most likely fake and made up, but feels <laughs> all important. Right. But, like, I mean, not the homophobia is fake, but it's like the societal thing that men can't be together is fake because we can Mm -hmm, Um, totally it's made it's it's man-made and and it's harmful and toxic just like in in Mm -hmm. tiger where they have this bond that they but they can't be together out of respect for the dead 
And that feels very real to them and it feels very um, powerful. And I I can respect that, but I'm also like, that's also man-made, like Mm -hmm. literally nothing stopping you. Um, right. Just get together. together. <laughs> just be together. Be happy. <laughs> and also, you know, Crouch and Hager has that amazing desert interlude, which is one of my oh, favorite parts of the movie, which also love it. like another isolated, secluded place where, you know, the rules of society, I know it's, it's a different, different characters, but mm-hmm. it feels like a place where the rules of society don't really exist. And we can just be the most free and once yes. you're out of that you, there's no way to recapture that feeling mm-hmm. um if you know if, i'm sure have you ever seen lost in translation i mean I yes must have but scarlett johansson has this line that i'm sure i've brought up a million times in this podcast because it's something that i find to be so profound i think about it all the time with movies <laughs> like this where she's like let's let's never come here again because it won't be the same yes and i'm i'm sure i'm misremembering the line but I, it's something along those lines and I think about that anytime I watch this movie, Your Call by Your Name or Crouching Tiger or any of these like romance movies that are full of bittersweet longing is that you can't capture it again because the circumstances are different. And, you know, once you're out of the desert or off the mountain or out of Italy, it's like nothing is the same or out of Japan. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, you just can't go back. It's like, you can't, you can't go home again and you can't like go on vacation again. <laughs> And like, even like, even if like, because I always think about like, you know, every time I go on vacation and I come home, I mean, maybe you've had, you, it's like, oh, I just want to go back. And I'm sure you felt you felt that way about your previous trip that you were just on. Like, um, and I feel the same way too. I'm like, I just want to go back and do it again and experience it. But even if I went back and did the exact same thing, it wouldn't be the same because it mm-hmm. wouldn't be the first time. Um, and uh, I feel like, I feel that really strongly with Crash and Tiger, Hidden Dragon, especially because the, you know, that desert scene is so, like, it, it's, the way it's structured, it's so genius because it's, like, very unconventional s- narrative structuring in that movie mm-hmm. where it kind of goes back and forth and you you, you feel like you, like, if I recall correctly, that desert interlude is, like, a flashback, but it's also, like, weirdly placed in the movie, but it's brilliant. Um, and I, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I feel it so strongly with, it, with, with Crouching Hager because it's... um you're dropped in the middle of this you're watching the movie in the middle you're dropped into this like bizarre romantic you know interlude that feels so powerful and magical and unreal um and yet it explains what you just saw and what you're about to see um and uh yeah and i feel I, i feel very i feel very close to i feel that these movies are very close to each other because um they both have this like intense repression based off of some man-made societal rule mm-hmm. and uh it's um all the more powerful that it's these people's own internal rule systems that they can't break it to be happy yeah i i couldn't have said it better myself i think you absolutely nailed it and i think you know it's funny i never thought of these two as being a great double feature but damn they would be (laughs) they're both so tragic in that people won't allow themselves to be happy and you're right and they're just they're thwarting their own happiness by these these rules that you know that yes, they are essentially yeah. just made up. And, you know, if they just went with their gut, if they just 
leaned into their love and their joy, they could be together, but they just won't allow themselves to be for either honor, you know, or fear. Um, but yeah, I think it, you know, talking about great lines, and that is such a great one from Lost in Translation. My favorite line from Brokeback Mountain is the one that Ennis says where he's like, if you can't fix it, you have to stand it. And that's so interesting. And I've been really mulling over that line. Like, Mm. why? Why do you have to stand it? Why Why must you endure it? And again, it just... It seems to be this like masochistic tendency that yeah. you're like, well, just got to endure it. Just got to do it. And yeah. So yeah, both of these films are so fascinating in how they're dealing with so many of the same themes and similar characters, even though they are very different circumstances, but both beautiful. Yeah. And I I love what you said about the freedom because, yeah, it really is true for Jack and Ennis that they can only truly be free when they're on Brokeback Mountain together in much the same way as the desert interlude, which is such a beautiful, beautiful scene. In the um, yeah. Uh, I'm such an Ang Lee stan that you could probably, <laughs> you could present to me any two movies. I'm sure I could find a way to tie them together thematically. <laughs> Love it. Um, because like one thing that I find very aggravating about uh, Ang Lee discourse is that um, people seem to be very down on his later career um, like Billy Lynn and Gemini Man, uh, which, you know, of course aren't, you know, aren't going to become his masterpieces, but I think that they are uh, very much in line with um, thematic concerns that have been driving at him from his first film, you know, Pushing Hands, um, and to this day. And and I, I think that he is such a, um, he's so versatile in his genre work, but he has a way to, he seems to be pursuing these same themes of repression and, and society and also like youth is another big theme for him um, mm-hmm. and you know, what it means to be young. I mean, he's such a great discoverer of young talent. I mean, like this movie like has like crazy actors in it, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, of course, our, our main quartet, but like Anna Ferris you know, uh, Linda Cardellini, mm-hmm. Mara, David Harbour. Um, I mean, I, I feel like David Harbour was probably working. I think they all were, were kind of working, but this seems to be like the first time you see a lot of these actors and it's quite, it's quite something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I really feel like the line that you mentioned, you know, if you can't fix it, you have to stand it. I mean, I also feel like that the, this movie feels like such an, it feels like a self kind of flagellation thing. Of like, mm-hmm. And as you're saying, like masochistic, I totally agree with that because um, again, it's like this thing of like, this is, there's an easy solution for you here. And <laughs> right? um, although I've ever reading somewhere that God, I, I feel like I, I'm I, a lot, of, a lot of bad takes on this movie come to mind. Um, one of them is, which is like, why didn't they just like move to, you know, California or New York or go to Mexico together and just kind of live in anonymity. But I, I think that like, even if these, you know, internal struggles are caused by man-made societal rules, they still feel so powerful that I don't even know if they would, I, I don't know if Ennis would ever be able to pick up and move to like New York to become a gay in West village or whatever. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's not in his character. I mean, I think he would hate that first of all, but I think it's also just like, 
this internal like um suffering that he's inflicting on himself and to me that's present such a um was such a uh central part of his character but also i don't even think it's that tied to his homosexuality or bisexuality i think it's actually just i mean it's just a part of his own what method of dealing with his own you know family trauma and um i mean i understand that like you know he you know saw the you know the the corpse of that of the other gay man but i think that like i think he just has this need to constantly punish himself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he does which makes him so tragic it's such a oh he's such a heartbreaking character and Heath Ledger just plays him beautifully, of course, as every role. Yeah. But, but yeah, I don't think he could just pick up and move anywhere. That's yeah. because Jack offers that to him. He keeps saying, like, you should move out of here. You should move to Texas. Like, even when he's divorced from Alma, and I know he doesn't want to move away from his daughters then, but even if he didn't have kids, he would never move. That's yeah. not who he is. Right. He just can't do it. So yeah, he just he can't get beyond his own issues, even aside from the societal issues. Yeah, um, I, I I find it so fascinating to, to, to kind of see a character that is so um, so hard to watch, but also just so intensely. I mean, I don't want to say endearing, but just like um, he's very watchable, even if he's constantly getting in his own way. And I, mm-hmm. I think a lot of that is Heath Ledger. I mean, you know, Heath Ledger is, of course, it's 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 always so tragic to think about, you know, like what we lost when we lost him. I know. Um, because he could only have gotten better and better. I mean, I, you know, I'm not... I, I'm, I'm not one of those like Batman guys, but the Dark Knight, his performance in the Dark Knight is just like, it's, it's you know, next level. Yeah, it's um, unbelievably good. And I feel he could only just keep topping it. Um, I do want to talk about the um, filmmaking of the film. Like, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of like the time jumps. And I think this movie is like impeccably edited. And I think that it's, the way that the editing slows down what it needs to and really quickens and it does feel like you kind of like wake up and it's been five years. Mm-hmm. I, I had a moment like that earlier where I was like, Oh wow. Like it's 2023 and I still feels like 2019. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, granted, like we lost a lot of the time, but um, I feel like this movie just has really just incredible work um, in that, um, and I just want to give a quick shout out to the editors, uh, uh, Geraldine uh, Peroni, who also worked on like the player and shortcuts and um, has had a quite eclectic career um, and also was coded by Dylan um, Tishenor, who's famous for doing uh, There Will Be Blood and World Tenenbaums. Uh, he actually he worked with... Um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson a lot. He's worked with M.S. Shyamalan and Catherine Bigelow and, you know, just a, a Wes Anderson, just, a, you know, a truly um, fascinating career in editing. And I think that Brooklyn Mountain is just like, you know, this. I don't think this movie got a nomination for Best Editing, which is a, sh- a, sh- a shame because I think that this movie 
really captures what it's like to lose years of your life mm-hmm. in a way that is really and then I mean, it packs like decades into, you know, two hours and 15 minutes or whatever. And it does so very seamlessly. It's like drawing, but in a very intentional, artistic way. Right, right. No, absolutely. And that that is the thing. Like, it is so hard to look back on your life and be like, whoa, where did all this time go? And what, have I, what was I doing with my life? And so, yeah, the, this film really does that exceptionally well. And it is really a testament to the the craftsmanship in the editing. Completely yeah. agree. We also, I just want to give a shout out to Rodrigo Prieto, who's yes. the cinematographer. Uh, most famously, has worked on Barbie. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy that like to watch this movie, like this movie, and like si- and it's, he also worked on Silence and Argo, and um, you know a bunch of other movies that I feel very like tactile and earthy and real. And then you look at like Barbie or the Wolf of Wall Street and it's all like plastic 80s consumerism. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, again, like quite uh, quite a career. But I, I really liked the cinematography in this movie. I mean, of course, like the um, the, the, the vistas and landscapes and the wide shots are, are really something special. But I mean, these close-ups are just so hard yes. to And especially, you know, we look at it like Michelle Williams and this that famous scene when she catches them, you know, making out like they're like on life support. Um, it's just like the way that her face is just captured is just so, you know, heartbreaking. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that you have to wonder when she thought of the line, Jack Nasty. <laughs> oh like, was that something that just came out as an improv for her uh, to say to Ennis? Or did she think that in the moment and just kept it in her pocket for when she needed it. Right. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful line, of course, has become a meme for, you know, for we gay men. <laughs> <laughs> and it's great um, because, you know, we love Michelle Williams. She is, she's a, she's a treasure among treasures. Um, but um, are there any like thoughts, any kind of like scenes you wanted to bring up or any kind of moments in the movie that um, just wanted to give like a quick shout out to? Oh my God. There's just, there's so many and we've talked about so many good ones. Um, I think what's interesting about thinking about the cinematography since, since you were just talking about it, I think what struck me and it's, it's not one particular scene. It's kind of a culmination of scenes is that so much of Ennis and Jack's affection towards each other is like wrestling and kind of aggressive, but then it like almost morphs into like this very, like this tenderness that's very lovely. And it really, I really did love those close-ups and it feels so intense, but getting those beautiful wide shots of the mountains is just exquisite too. And it just feels like time kind of stands still there in a really lovely way. Um, Oh, I yes, there is one scene though that we have not talked about that is stunning. I I think it's always hard to nail an ending of a of a book, of a film. Yeah. And I think this ending is one of the most stunning. And mm-hmm. I love that Ennis and it um Jack's parents, like when Ennis goes to talk to them and he goes into Jack's former room and he sees his shirt and Jack's shirt inside each Uh. other. And then he like holds them and hugs them and smells them and has like this emotional break. Yeah, It's gutting. But then I love that later 
after his daughter has told him that she's getting married, I love that he opens the closet and there's the shirts again and the picture of Brokeback Mountain and he's talking to Jack and I'm just like, oh my God, my heart. Like, it's so stunning and just, oh, what a scene. What a scene. Yeah. I mean, that's just so, uh, so beautiful. And it's like, to me... I kind of have this theory about like movies like this and like, you know, Portrait Lady on Fire and Call Me Your Name, where like, even if like there's something, there's, there, I think there's more nuances to like the concept of happy endings. Yes. Um, where like, you know, we all think of happy endings as like the couple gets together at the end. And, but for me, I'm like, there's, there's something to celebrate in the fact that. Um, that you have some kind of memento or some kind of proof that what you had with someone meant something. And like, mm-hmm. I, my, my hottest, hottest take is that like Portrait Lady on Fire actually has a very happy ending because they don't get together, but you can see, like, I mean, how much would we love to be able to see someone we love have an intense emotional reaction to, to a memory of that they mm-hmm. have of, of us, you know? Like, to me, there's some satisfaction in seeing that, like, yes, I mattered. I was there. It, we had something, and it was real, and mm-hmm, it still affects mm-hmm. me to this day. And I feel the same way about this movie, where it's like, yeah, of course, you know, Jack has died, and, and there's separation and anxiety and, and, and um, you know, sadness. But he, we have a memento of, of that time together. And we have something tangible that we can hold in our hands that shows that I mattered. I matter to him. I matter to you. You matter to me. Um, and that, like, there's a, our, that love was real, even if we couldn't have it in the way we wanted it. Um, and it's, it's just so, it's, it's so profound that he has that. And it's like his, it's like his the one time he got to allow himself to open his, eh, open up you know it's then actually there's actually a you know a souvenir an artifact um Mm -hmm. and that something so special to us was kept so lovingly and given to us i mean that to me is just like what you know what else could be um you know what else could be that's as special as that Oh my God, I'm going to cry here. That's so nice. Everything you said is so beautiful. But you know, I I do think they're both, I do think Portrait of Lady on Fire is still a sad ending, but I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad, but. Right, but no, I think, I think you're very right in the sense that we should reframe, you know, the kind of the paradigm of happy endings yeah. because all relationships end, all of them, no matter how yeah. short, no matter how long, no matter whether they end in a breakup or in death or, you know, what divorce, whatever. Well, that's a breakup, but they all end. So it's like, does that negate the power and potency and connection that you shared with someone just because of the longevity? No, of course not. And so you're right that the fact that these two people found each other and had this connection and that Ennis was able to maybe not change completely, but shift ever so slightly into letting go of his rigidity. That's huge. And that is really impactful. And and that is what that love and relationship with Jack did for him. And 
it's so beautiful to see. And so, yeah, the fact that there's a tangible celebration of their love in that way yeah. is a, a very happy ending. It, it's it's a beautiful moment. So I, I think you're onto something. <laughs> and even that like small little interaction that Ennis has with Jack's mom, you know, oh. when she offers him the cake and, oh. you know, like defies her husband. Yes. You know? um, I, to me, that's like another, another little artifact of like, hey, maybe actually Jack talked to his mom about us or maybe mm-hmm. she knew or she picked up on something and, you know, maybe she, she, I don't know if she'll ever go to a pride parade, but, you know, she at least accepted it enough to want to wish me well and to mm-hmm. send me off with, um, with the memory. Um, and that's another, another way that this movie is, I don't know if this movie makes me feel good. I mean, it makes me feel sad and and makes me think and makes me mm-hmm. feel emotional and bittersweet. But it's like these little moments that, you know, can bring you some kind of joy in a, in a life that's very tough, you know? Yeah. Um, I just, yeah. And to me, that's the only touch of this, like finding ways in which, you know, this tragic love story can have, even just a handful of moments of of joy, whether it's the two of them softly lit in motel room or the jacket on the hanger or, um, you know, even just jumping off the cliff, you know, mm-hmm. into, a, a, into a lake or into a pond, you know, when you're just unaware that people, you know, might reject this relationship. You're just living in your own abandon. Um but yeah, I I mean, I just like to kind of wrap up a lot of my, you know, rambling about <laughs> the movie. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, Broken Up Mountain just to me just represents such a turning point in my life in so many ways. And it, it's always kind of, as I'm getting older, you know, I'm in my mid-30s almost. And, uh, you know, this movie is almost 20 years old. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I think it's become you know, a, a, a movie that stood the test of time, in my opinion. You know, it made a lot of money at the box office, partially because it was such an Oscars favorite, but also because I, I think that this movie has a lot of, um, you know, I think it holds true for, you know, for people across all demographics. You know, it's not, it's it's a queer movie, but it's not just for, you know, gay men. It's not just for, um, you know, uh, you know, for queer people, it's, I, I think it has a lot of truth and honesty and, and authenticity. And, and I think it's just so beautiful and sad and romantic. And yeah, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad, Megan, that you were here to talk to, talk to me about this movie, about, you know, how much it means to me and everything I love about it. Um, and I appreciate you, uh, taking on, um, sort of the, the guest host responsibilities on the top <laughs> of the episode, but, I'd love for you to share kind of what you're working on, what you're doing, and where people can find you. Yeah, so you can find me every week. I'm at the podcast Spoiler Piece Theater. You can find us at spoilerpiece.com. Uh, you can also find my written film reviews at Edge Media Network. And you can find me on social media on Twitter and Blue Sky at Opinioness World and on Instagram and Letterboxd at The Opinioness. Yes. Um, love the podcast. Love all the Thank work you. that you're doing. Um, 
I you can find me on Twitter at Vertigate314. Also follow the podcast at It Had to Be You. Um, but yeah, this was the end of the queer romance mini series. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking to uh, LGBTQ guests about movies that they love and all they all all of that's meant to them. Starting from my beautiful lingerie into into this film. Um, and uh, next, uh, starting in um, uh, starting in uh, next month, I'll be doing a sports romance miniseries with movies like Rocky and Bull Durham and uh, Fever Pitch and Jerry Maguire and a whole bunch of other really awesome movies. I don't like sports, but I like sports movies, and I think they're <laughs> I think it's a, it's a kind of a fun uh, it's it's kind of fun to. See think of sports movies as romances because I think they all have, you know, you know, supportive love interests or foils or and stuff like that and um, a lot of fun dynamics in terms of like battle, the sexism and all that. So look out for that. It'll be a lot of fun. And that's leading up to our 100th episode, which will be coming in 2024. So that's exciting as well. Um, Megan, thanks again. It was so, so lovely to chat with you and, you know, thanks for... <laughs> being here while I talk at you about this <laughs> no it was a delight and it was my pleasure so thank you so much for having me <laughs> all right um, so we'll uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon